danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 317 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Melrose, Massachusetts, I'm Nate Mavis. And with me, from Baltimore, Maryland, it's Andrew Brokus. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing pretty well. It's good to have you back on the show, Nate. It's good. Yeah, to I guess there's really only been one episode without you. We just haven't put out a lot of episodes recently. But yeah, uh, yeah you haven't really missed that much. But it's good to talk to you is what I mean. Yeah, and we apologize for that. And we're, uh, we're going to try to get back on track here. Yeah, Things happen. Got- We've got an exciting guest today, and this is cool because he actually came to us, uh, Adam Levy. Many of you might, well, I guess now he's probably better known as Adam Levy. I still think of him as Ruthless because yeah. I knew him first as an online player, but oh, I yeah. guess he hasn't really been Ruthless to a lot of people for a long time. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of him as the Crank Anchor's avatar on Pokestars. Right. Like, right. yeah, that that's that's what comes to mind, which I think makes me uh, extremely old indeed. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a memory that somebody who's been out of poker for a few years would have, I think. Um, but yeah, this was a very, very convenient, I guess, just with a lot going on with um, trying to play poker and, and write a book and all that kind of stuff. I've been pretty bad about uh, the like scheduling side of, of things and, and trying to line up guests. So it was nice. This one really just kind of dropped right now. I mean, Adam and I had been talking via DM some about him coming on the show at some point, but uh, he just hit me up. I was like, hey, how about this week? And I was like, yeah, definitely. Let's <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, an A-list guest with no effort required sounds beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, real solid, real solid. And and how's your poker life been? Uh, pretty good. You know, I've been I've been playing tournaments, so you know, there's there's that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it was nice. I mean, I went to I went to Atlantic City for the uh, World Poker Tour, which I guess I, I talked about on the show, um, the last show that I did solo. But, you know, I mean, that's like, it's a good event, but it's it's an annoying event in a lot of ways. And um, I don't really like the drive from like Baltimore to Atlantic City is, is sort of a nasty drive. And then now there's there's a series at National Harbor, which is only about an hour's drive from Baltimore, but it's a real nasty drive with <laughs> with traffic. And I just played, so we're recording on, on Sunday um, where I'm, I'm not playing day two of their like $400 open tournament and you know it's, it's one of those things where I, I had not been to national harbor in about two years and, and going reminded me why i don't go <laughs> more often i just although the games are better there than maryland live i don't think they're enough better to warrant like a lot of extra commute plus stress you know so like even from an hourly rate perspective it's like probably about an hour and a half at least often two hours of extra kind of like hassle to get down there and and play um so that's a decent amount that you have to make up in terms of having a, a better hourly rate down there just to account for those like two hours never mind that i would much, those, those two hours would be much more pleasantly spent at a poker table than in like dc area traffic yeah. Um, so yeah driving down there to play a 400 hour tournament was not my uh wisest decision and you know contribute to the pain of um and you don't really expect especially a tournament like that with a pretty shallow structure and stuff you know, you, you have to expect like there's a pretty good chance that it's just going to be like boring for a while and then you're going to lose which is what happened um but you know having having made an annoying drive to go down there makes it a little extra um there, there's there's more room for frustration yeah that sounds bad 
Um, so can I spring a question on you? Yeah. Uh, listeners, this is this is not stage. This is not strange. So I was listening to the podcast uh, with Carlos, um, which was really good. You guys do great work. Um, one nice thing about being on somewhat fewer podcasts is that I get to <laughs> experience them as a listener. You guys are great. And I have like a, a professional question for you, which is like you're you're a big metagame mental game guy. And by metagame, I mean things around the game, like decisions that are not poker decisions that make or lose you money. Yeah, mental. I, I would say more metagame than I, I don't really think of myself as a big mental game guy compared to like people who are actually big mental game guys. But go on. Like, yeah, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a hypnotist coach. Yeah, you're playing right into my hands here. And it, it, it's, a com- <laughs> it's a combination of a mental game question and an evaluating results over a small sample question. So uh, in that, like, so you're really candid and with Carlos, you basically say that you took your eye off the ball and blew up in 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 the tournament in so many words, like you adopted the wrong goal, took a cash game mentality and made a huge mistake. Is that fair? I guess I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it for now. I mean, <laughs> substantial, substantial mistake, uh, yeah. a mistake that probably you would not think you should be making. Um yeah, I guess that's fair. And, you know, listeners can go back to the train wreck episode. Last time you were deep in a tournament, you right, made right, a large right. mistake that you, like, not, and again, not so much like a poker mistake, or like taking the wrong approach in a hand mistake that resulted in a big sort of tournament problem. So, like, you're really good at this, and I think you're better than your your peers at this. Um, at like preparation and and the mental side of the game and the making other decisions side of the game, but like if you look back over your last year of results, um, mental game wise, like they're not great. You went deep in two tournaments and each time you on a hand that you took the wrong approach in by your own lights. So like my temptation is to say like you do really really well at the mental side of things. That's a small sample and like I shouldn't overlook. And, like, it sort of comes along with a lot of things that you do right, like three-betting appropriately, taking an aggressive stance and a lot of other pots, like, put you in that position, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also just two mistakes. So when you're thinking about this from the perspective of, like, being your own coach, do you say, like, oh, I have a mental game problem that I need to address, or B, that's a very small sample, or C, it's actually a large sample of things that I did mostly well? (laughs) (laughs) Um, this is harsh, by the way. Hi, hi, welcome back. Welcome back to podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) My inclination is to say B, but I feel like I have to acknowledge that that's also the one that like most lets me off the hook. So, um, I think, you know, anyone listening to this would be, would be rightly skeptical and I want to be skeptical of my, my inclination to say B. Uh, That's good. That's good. Um, I'm honestly like just curious um yeah uh it's it's something that i'm like grappling with from the other side it's like when i do session reviews i'm finding sort of fewer mistakes than i've ever found before but uh it seems very wrong to in like to go from there to like i'm playing the best poker of my life um and like 
and certainly not like I have nothing to work on. Not at all. <laughs> um, but like, it's not even clear my mental game is where it should be, et cetera. And um, it's just, it's really hard to like, think about evaluating your results from a mental game perspective, right? Like how, how do you do that as a pro? Or is there anything you can say about that, I guess? Yeah, I don't feel like I have anything real intelligent to say about it off the top of my head. Um, yeah, it's like, I guess, I, here's what I'm worried about, is like, that I'm reinforcing the worst mental game habit that people have, which is also the same, like, poker analysis habit that that, that people have, which is like, think about your bust-out hands or your cripple hands, and then, like, try to invent ways that they could have gone differently. <laughs> <laughs> And like, do not do that. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do that. Um, yeah. So that was harsh. Sorry. Uh, fair. We can we can cut this out if you want. No, no, no. I'm I'm not looking to cut it out. I would. Um, I mean, I guess the 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 main thing that I would want to like rephrase is there were two tournaments that I, I the way I would put it is there were two tournaments that I was doing well in where I eventually made an error that was sort of um at least partly like big picture strategic in nature rather than just tactical in nature like you know it wasn't just a matter of you know you played a hand differently than how pio Salver would have played it or something like that or you know without yeah. a good justification because obviously i play a lot of hands differently from how someone would have played them but um you know like not not a not a tactical mistake of uh, you know you just like you bet because you didn't realize checking might have been might have been better it was more a matter of like not thinking big picture about like that that stage of the the tournament um the 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 main like f phrasing thing that I would object to was like there were other tournaments that I was deep in besides those two where that didn't happen. Oh, um, and right. actually, I wasn't that deep in the. Uh, I mean, it, it felt like it in the um the one at Cherokee. I mean, it was it was the bubble. We weren't even in the money yet. Um, if it, it felt like you know I had been doing well for like I think I was probably even the chip leader of that tournament for a while. And I think like where the majority of those chips went was uh like i mean I, I i came into day two already kind of short stacked so a, a lot of where the chips had, had gone it was not something that i like you know felt felt bad about how that had happened um so that's like a sweating mistake by me it's like ah andrew's the chip leader Woo! it's like ooh, yeah yeah it's, uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's like you can be the chip leader like being the chip leader at like dinner break on day one means that you have kind of the equivalent of maybe like what will be 70 big blinds or something at the start of day two. And I actually started day two with like 30 big blinds. So, you know, to say like, it's really not that hard to lose 40 big blinds without making a mistake. I mean, that's not exactly what happened because it was more big blinds than that, but it's just like, you know, when, when like doing well in a tournament, I, I think a lot of people, and I know you wouldn't like deliberately subscribe to this mistake, but I think uh, th there's a tendency to assume like something must've gone wrong if I had a lot of chips and now I don't have a lot of chips, especially yeah. if it didn't happen all in one, like very dramatic. Like, it wasn't like I just got in heaps with aces versus Kings and got sucked out on or something, yeah. you know, like there were, but I, I think, like there were just a lot of spots where I, I can, I mean, I'm not saying I played all of them perfectly or something, but you know, I, I think I could sort of point to what happened in, in a number of those spots. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it, it's, it's sort of like all of those things, the, the, where the small sample size bit comes in is that I do sort of feel like there's still a heavy dose of, bad luck that's involved in even like 
being in a position to make those particular mistakes. So like the, the bust out hand in, in Cherokee, it was like, I started with aces. I had something like 20 big blinds to start the hand. You know, someone called my raise and flopped a flush. And so like, you know, on the one hand, I, I had a like non-trivial decision, even pre-flop about what to do with the, the aces. And I think my like maybe not being in quite the right mindset was related to some run bad that had occurred in very recent hands as well, where like I, I I mean I was stealing in a way that is not really what you'd be wanting to do on the bubble if other people were playing well. Like I I definitely should have <laughs> two previous hands that I'd open, but I was like very confident given who was behind me. I was like, these people are not gonna put pressure on me. Like they're all super wrapped up in in caching and they're not going to recognize that like i should be even more wrapped up in caching than they are because i have fewer chips than they do and, and pressure me like they're just only going to play bots if they had huge hands and then just like both times the guy on my left had huge hand he showed them to me like i was like okay like i'm only getting shoved on if someone has like queens plus and he was like queens plus queens plus again yeah. um you know so th- there's sort of like <laughs> this time i've only got a small pair queens <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so I guess I feel like there was, like, enough of a confluence of bad factors. Like, I guess I'm essentially just willing to accept that um, if there's, like, a sufficiently... Like, I, I, I'm not going to beat myself up too badly over, um, I think, a relatively small mistake in the grand scheme of things. Like, I, I don't think, you know, just getting aces in on the... Even if it's, like, a mistake on the bubble, I think it's not that much of a mistake. Uh, and it's sort of, like, when I think about the conditions that were required to lead to it, not just in that one hand, but in a few prior hands, I sort of feel like in terms of things that are priorities for me to work on, I think if it's, like, you know, you momentarily lose sight of the ball because of, like, when there's been, like, a string of, uh, you know, sub-5%, or not sub-5%, but, like, sub-10% um, occurrences uh, at, at a moment when it was sort of, like, not worst for you for them to happen, Um I guess that's something I'm pretty inclined to like forgive myself for and also not feel like I need to really prioritize fixing going forwards. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, absolutely. Absolutely. The main event one I think was more related to uh, exhaustion, you know, to, um, and, and so like, I think my, the way that I want to address that, and this, uh, I mean, first off, that's pretty specific to the main event. Like there's not a lot of other tournaments where you're going to be playing that many days straight. Um, but I do want to, you know, adjust how I'm approaching that tournament in in the future. I think I'm unlikely to play the last day one again, so that I can get that day off between days two and three. I think that's like a bigger deal than I um, appreciated, or like I think I should prioritize that more highly going forward. There's probably some other things that I'll I'll try to do differently to like be in better shape coming into it, and um, you know, maybe try to get some better sleep around that. Yeah. I'm, but I think that's more how I'd be inclined to address it more so than like hiring a mental game coach. Yeah, that seems right. And I mean, we, we talked about this at length and honestly, I thought it was a good episode and I'm sorry to bring up a painful memory again, but I'm proud of the episode and you know, it, it, uh, you know, wasn't my money anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but like one thing that I think is super interesting about that hand is like on the flop, you just had the strong instinct that the guy was going to bet all three streets and like, to me, that's an interesting kind of information. It almost feels like information that comes from from someone else. It's like somebody says, like, "Oh, there's amazing, there's an amazing 4080 game going on at the Encore that's like not on the Bravo app or whatever." And like, you just have to figure out how to how to 
how to judge that. And like in your case, your instincts have been like a pretty reliable friend that have made you a lot of money over, over the years. And like, I think that's a super interesting question, how to, how to incorporate that kind of evidence. And, um, I mean, we talk about this at very great length, how to assess that on, on the relevant episode. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's like a complicating thing here. And it's that to me is like a big part of why this is not a straightforward case of just like a mental game failure, or at least mental game is not something that you're either doing well or badly. Like it's not like being rested where it's sort of a scalar value. It's like a much more uh, fine grained, fine grained thing. Um, but thank you for answering the question candidly. I'm it's, it's useful to me too, as like a weekend warrior, um, like even just thinking about where is my mental game at, it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to assess. And like, certainly am I bluffing enough is not the only question you can ask. <laughs> although, <laughs> although in my case, it's a good start. It's a good start. That is like actually the number one indicator of whether my mental game is where it should be or not is like, am I bluffing more or less and more is better. Um, so, so. We will have our strategy segment coming up in just a moment, but if you want lots more strategy from Nate and me, you should check out www.nitcast.com. That's where you will find my book, Play Optimal Poker, Nate's books, Thinking Tournament Poker, a bunch of other books I wrote that have some strategy, and then I call the Thinking Poker Diaries, which are uh, just sort of recaps of some of the earlier World Series of Poker uh, main events that I played, including three where I made the top 100. Um, and there's some reflection on mental game stuff in there as well. And uh, perhaps most of interest to those of you listening to this podcast for the strategy element, we have got uh, several series that are just chock full of strategy that are 100% strategy, in fact, and those are called premium podcasts. So we have two that are called Weekend Warrior. There's Weekend Warrior and Weekend Warrior 2. Both of those are focused on like mid-stakes live cash game play. Um, there's Coaching Carlos, which is focused on introducing, specifically introducing a tournament player to uh, live cash game play, although I think even if you're just new to live cash game play in general, that'll probably still be uh, useful and of interest to you. And there is, um, I think the, this one is just called Premium, uh, Thinking Poker Premium, Volume 1 or something like that. And uh, this is about uh, our, how we approach tournaments with, I guess, a focus on the WSOP main event, but really just because that's a tournament that gives you more opportunity. Like All the same elements of, poker, of you know, any poker tournament are there just because of the long levels you spend more time in each like stage of the tournament there's more opportunities to get examples so i don't want people to think like just because you're not playing 10ks that series has nothing to offer you but uh yeah lots of pure strategy regardless of the game that you play if you really want a thinking poker strategy you want to pick up those premium podcasts and or some of those books from www.nitcast.com our question today comes from a listener named nate uh, Nate in Melrose, Massachusetts, he says. Uh, he says, I'm running more biggish less big bluffs than ever before, but I'm still battling a thousand on them at Encore, unless I'm forgetting one, which I don't think I am. This in turn strongly suggests I'm missing opportunities. 
I know this is a question you get a lot. How do I find spots to do X? And you generally answer, don't look to do X. Look to play your ranges properly, and you'll wind up doing the right amount of X. But in this case, it really is tricky because, one, some of the smaller pot habits are really deeply ingrained, and two, a lot of the decisions are pretty close. Also, three, the sample size is still pretty small. Well, thanks for your question, Nate. Uh, any any advice you want to give, Nate? Uh, feels like I'm talking to a different guy. I sent you this question like months ago. It's, it's, it's like, who is this? Who is this guy, Nate? Nate from two months ago. It's, it's almost unrecognizable. Almost unrecognizable. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's like hard. I still, I mean, I haven't played a ton since then, but like. <clears throat> I mean, it's a little awkward because there are like many listeners in the game who possibly <laughs> just think I've been knitting it up, but I kind of, I feels like I've been getting away with murder. Um, and, but like, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, completely inexperienced at, at actually murdering people, but uh, unlike with actual murder, you don't want to get away with it every time. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, you're doing something wrong. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, I, I just don't know. It's like, I think, I think most of the time I would just say like, Oh, control the pot here. Like I, I don't, that's not a thing I'm doing. Um, I think if it's pretty close, I'm erring on the side of, of pulling the trigger on the bluff. Like I think the sort of the, the, the flip side of, they always have it is like, they're always folding. (laughs) So, (laughs) so if you don't know whether to, to, like if it's the river and you think it's like roughly a break even bluff in theory, then like definitely do it at two five. Like definitely just every time. Um, uh, and even if you think it's like slightly bad, you should probably still do it. Um, maybe I shouldn't now against certain people, but, um, <laughs> but that's that. So yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, how do I deal with this kind of evidence? It's like, they've all worked. And there have been kind of a bunch of them by now, but they shouldn't all work. So like, what am I, like, how do I go about finding these spots? I don't know how to find. I'm already, you know, looking for them. Um, I'm already kind of thinking that way. It's something I'm improving on. And also if I, like, if I get this wrong, um, if I choose like extra bluff spots that are bad, those can be pretty big mistakes. Like, so I, it's, um, I know there are some listeners who, whether or not they will admit this to themselves, themselves like they would be thinking like oh and like there's also a part of me that thinks this like oh i'm bluffing more than ever um it's going well for me and it's like working every time like isn't that just awesome <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like why why, yeah, why there, there's that? a lot of tiny violins playing for you right now Nick. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so so what, what do i do andrew the the first thing I want to address, and and you know you've already stated some some confidence in doing this, and and I believe you. So this is more for the benefit of listeners than for you. But I do think just a failure to look for bluffs is a big part of the reason why a lot of people don't end up bluffing enough. Um, if you go entirely on kind of like feel or just like bluffing when it feels like a good time to bluff, um, I think you're only going to be taking the well, one of two things is going to happen, uh, and I mean, or they can 
they, they can both happen, I guess, but um, your, your buffs are going to be motivated by one of two things. I mean, one is you may just only be getting like the very highest value bluffs where you're just like, if, if your feel is actually good and you're just like, I really feel like this guy is going to fold in this situation, then okay, you're going to get the like most high value bluffs when you've got an opponent who's just like making it super obvious that he's not going to pay off, you know, whatever big better raise or whatever that you make. And that's great. I mean, you want to get those high value situations. You just don't want to rest on your laurels on that. Um, and so I think that's one problem for people is if, if people don't really go around looking for bluffs and they just occasionally go with a feel of like, oh, this guy's really weak. I think I can steal this pot. Uh, you know, it's better than not doing that. But I think you're not playing uh, at full capacity. And I think that has, like, I, I think you're sort of, maybe we should make this a little more explicit, Nate. The reason why what's happening with you is, is potentially a problem is that your bluffs aren't supposed to succeed 100% of the time, right? Like, even if you're making a large bet, you know, say a pot size bet, that still only needs to work half the time to show a profit. And if your bluffs are succeeding 100% of the time, what that indicates is that there's probably some bluffs out there that you're not making that wouldn't succeed 100%, but that might succeed, you know, 70% or, or you know, whatever. Um, or sorry, yeah, yeah, that might, like, they would succeed, whatever, surpass whatever threshold is required to make them profit profitable but not be hitting anywhere near 100 percent. so if you're never getting bluffs called that would be a, like maybe an indication that you're missing out on some potentially profitable but thinner bluffing opportunities yeah so like compare let's say i went up to a backer and said like great news i got fantastic news i looked at my hand histories at bovada every time i fold the river to an all-in bet i'm behind i have not folded the river with the winner once like that's that's bad you don't right. want that <laughs> No, I, I like to, I, I like to say that to people. I probably said it on the air before too, but like there are poker players out there who never get bluffed, and uh, those are some of the best people to have at your table. <laughs> like you're you're supposed to get bluffed sometimes, and likewise your bluffs are supposed to get called sometimes. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It's it's I mean as long as it's not happening too much, it means you're doing something right. Yeah, that 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 conversation probably would not end with me still having a backer. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> So, I mean, the the first bit of advice that I tend to give people is that in any given situation, and th this relates to the idea of range construction that I talked about on, on last week's episode as well, but in any given situation, you really want to be looking beyond just what do I think is the best play with the cards that I'm currently holding, or even more, what I think a lot of people do is just sort of like, what's the obvious play with the cards that I'm holding? Um, and really ask yourself, like, what would my bluffs be in this given situation? Like, try to build your entire range, try to, or at least, you know, uh, try to sketch out your entire range, not just not just think about, oh, well, right now I have like middle pair. So obviously I'm checking that, right? You really want to be like, okay, what, how, how widely would I be value betting in this situation? What would my value bets look like? What would my bluffs look like? You know, if I can have nutty hands, can I bet them large? And if not, like in any situation where you feel like you couldn't bet large with your nuttiest hands, um, the, the flip side of that should be that you have that's because you have very few weekends available to you and you should definitely be betting any weekends that you do have. And in fact, maybe even taking the bottom of what you might consider like hands would be considered marginal different situation. If they're like the weakest pairs that you could have and you couldn't have anything weaker than the pair, then like those are actually at the bottom of your range and those might be good bluffing candidates. So I think like you should just be asking yourself the question, what would I bluff with in this situation? But anytime that you, um, essentially decline to bluff, right? Whether that's because you have a very weak hand that has no chance of winning a showdown, but you are just, for whatever reason, not inclined to bluff with it. Or even if you have a hand where you're 
like, well, I guess I have a shred of showdown value, so I'll just check and hope it's good. You know, anytime before you do something like that, you should, or, you know, call and hope it's good. You should be asking yourself the question, what would I bluff with in this situation? And if you can identify some good candidates, you can say, oh, here's a different hand that I might have based on how this has played out, and I would bluff with that hand, you can feel a little better about not bluffing with your current hand. I mean, that's a very, like, imprecise, sloppy way of constructing a range, but it's an easy thing to do over the felt. Um, and then if you can identify candidate, or if you're like, well, I don't know what my, what my bluffs would be in this spot, that might be an indication that maybe your current hand is a hand that you should be bluffing with. So I, I think that's like the biggest problem that people have is they're just not actively looking for bluffing opportunities. They take the ones that, that fall right in their laps. And then I guess I didn't talk about the, the second um, source of inspiration for bluffs, which tend to just be frustration. Like I think when a lot of people, when it comes to bluffing, if they just go based on feel, a lot of times they just like, they bluff when they're frustrated with their current results. Or I mean, it's very well known. Um, I think most people who play live poker are kind of aware of this, that like people tend to be more bluffy when they're stuck. Like when, when someone has been losing in a session, they're more interested in bluffing. And then there's a lot of people who like when they're ahead, they tend not to bluff because like, well, I'm already winning. Why would I take any chances? Like I can, I can book a winning night without, you know, there's the people call it being on lockdown or whatever. I think that's one of the dangers of, just doing your bluffs based on feel is that especially when it comes to bluffing, your feel is going to be highly influenced by your like emotional state and how you feel about how the night has been going for you. Yeah, particularly if you're not very disciplined about that kind of thing. Yep. I agree. From a more game theoretical perspective, I think it's useful to think about what, um, what it is that bluffing exploits, right? And the obvious answer is it exploits opponents who fold too much. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. Um, even even when we're talking about opponents who fold too much, I think it's good to consider where exactly your opponents are making their folding mistakes and trying to identify, is this a guy who gets to the river with a wide range and then folds too often to big bets on the river? Or is this a guy who uh, sees the flop with a really wide range and then gives up if he doesn't get like a big piece of the flop? Or you know, what is the what is the place where the player makes uh, his, his folding mistakes? And even if you can't identify an exact place, there's still a kind of like an Ed Miller pyramid sort of effect where if somebody's starting range is too wide they're probably going to make like they're probably even if it's not a folding mistake it's not a, a mistake exactly because their range like they already made the mistake and just playing too wide of a range in the first place so like, kind of like overfolding might be the way for them to make the best of a bad situation they got themselves into by playing too wide of a range in the first place so it might not even be exactly a folding mistake but once someone is playing an overly wide range um they've kind of already made the mistake and then if you are just betting like appropriately polarized ranges at them in in various spots like you're going to exploit the fact that they're playing an overly wide range even if you can't identify exactly how they're going to um, or like exactly where they're going to make their mistake later so i think the more that you can just identify okay, here's a player who's calling too much pre-flop here's a player who's raising too much pre-flop three betting too much pre-flop betting too much on the flop barreling too much on the turn the more you start to notice those things even if you're not sure that folding mistakes are going to follow you do want to increase your level of aggression with both strong and weak hands um, once that player reaches the point where you believe they're playing too many hands. In other words, if you think this player is three betting too much and this player three bets you, you want to up your aggression against that player at all subsequent points. That means four betting more aggressively against them. It means calling and check raising flops more aggressively. Um, 
betting after the flop in three bet pots, just like everything that happens after they three bet. If you can start from the assumption that their three betting range is too wide, then you want to up your aggression, not just your bluffing, your value betting as well. You also need to lower your standards for what counts as like a good enough hand to um, to play a large pot for value. But uh, you do want to try to target those players with um, with more aggression. And I think that's another one that a lot of people uh, I, in fact, I think like so. There, there's a, a question that one of my students sent me recently, or a hand that he sent me, where um, he he three bet with ace five suited, or you know, he he had a, an opponent who he thought was raising too much opened, and he had ace five suited, and he's like, okay, I know people talk about this being like a really good three betting candidate, but you know this guy, he was so aggressive, I was afraid he was going to four bet me if I three bet, so I just called. And my answer was, okay, so shove, like <laughs> five yeah. bet all in. Like if you think he's going to four bet too much, like that's part of why, why ace five suited is such a good three betting candidate is it is also a good light five betting candidate. Yeah. Um, and, and like his reaction was to say, well, this guy's playing too many hands. So I'm going to decrease my aggression against him. And I think that's like exactly the wrong approach. It, you know, it should be not that you want to three bet him with just anything, but like when you do happen to have a really good candidate for it, if your identification is this guy plays too many hands, you should be increasing your like looking anytime that the decision seems close between uh, aggression or or passivity, you probably want to err on the on the aggression side. Yeah. Uh, um, one other kind of example that I came across somewhat recently um, that I think some people would miss um, is a session I played with somebody who was a sort of canonical good for the game type, um, not experienced at poker very much, like probably plays a weekend ten dollar game with his friends uh, was having a few beers and like just really quite loose. And the thing is like, this was a like 80% VPIP player and somebody who would continue on at least the flop with any pair and often with ACE or King high. And I think like people say, Oh, that guy, like he's not folding. He's not folding. And like, yes, he will call on the river with hands that, tighter players would not call with on the river, but he's calling much less of his range for getting to the river than other players. And like, I think people assume without evidence that these people are going to just call on the river with third, fourth, fifth pair. But my default is the opposite. Like I think somebody who's there, that person usually doesn't want to go bust too quick. And, and even if it's, even if he's not thinking like that, even if he has a lot of money in his pocket, which he's likely to, um, like your sort of average week two five player, your average very good for the game two five player, just is not defaulting to calling five hundred dollars with fourth pair on the river. Just is not. I mean, might sometimes, but like if, if you just drop me, like if you if you don't give me any previous video footage and you drop me into a game and it's on the river and there's like some obvious wreck there and facing a five hundred dollar bet with fourth pair like no matter how loose that person is pre-flop or on the flop that person's folding that person's folding for the most part um but that person also has like a lot of fourth pair and worse if 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 he's v-pipping 80 percent then continuing with any pair and some not pair hands on the flop and so counterintuitively what this means is that you should just be a bluffing machine an absolute bluffing machine against this supposedly unbluffable player somebody who is unbluffable on the flop and pre-flop um on the river you should just be i mean it 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 should be rare to have uh uh, to get to the river with air against that player 
and not bluff it. <laughs> right. Um, so that uh, analogous example comes up um, happily, not not so infrequently. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, one issue that a lot of people have related to this is just they don't like the variance that's associated with it. <clears throat> or they're like, well, what if that guy does have the strong hand this time? And like, I mean, if he does, like, I mean, you definitely can lose a few buy-ins this way. And I know a lot of recreational players, I mean, we've tried to address this, especially in the Weekend Warrior podcasts, to talk about the need to be, like, appropriately bankrolled, even if you are playing recreationally, and uh, to, like, actually bring enough money with you that you can afford to lose a couple buy Like, it shouldn't be unheard of for you to lose, like, four buy-ins in a 2-5 game or something. I mean, that's a similar example to Never Bluffing, where you, you could brag about that and be like, I've never had a negative four buy-in night. And, like, that tells me you're not trying hard enough. Like, you've probably also not had a lot of like plus four buy-in nights um and you know like there the the variance doesn't have to be uh i mean you're not happy about it when it happens but like variance doesn't you don't have to have a feeling on variance one way or the other i mean people tend to use variance just to mean negative variance <laughs> like you know the, it, it's variance when they lose and they don't really talk so much about variance when when they win but i just mean variance in the strictest sense of the word of like swings you know like if if you could either play a style that guarantees you're always within a range of plus or minus two buy-ins in a night which is kind of how a lot of people play um or play a style where you're plus or minus six buy-ins uh, i think a lot of people would just say they prefer the plus or minus two and the problem is you haven't asked what's the win rate difference between the two <laughs> um and i think like you really shouldn't have ideally any attachment to you know the plus or minus two versus the plus or minus six in practice like i understand you're probably going to experience more frustration when you're playing the plus or minus six strategy but um I think like I think a lot of people aren't even open to it right now, and I think that you, uh, if, if you're just sort of like taking off the table any like this kind of strategy that we're describing of where well, you should just be bluffing pretty aggressively at, the, at these guys, if you're just like completely unwilling to do that because of the possibility of losing a few buy-ins, I mean, if you're playing for fun, that's like entirely up to you. If it's just not fun for you to have those kinds of nights, and it's more fun for you to play a lower variant style, you know, more power to you. It's you know do do what you enjoy. But if your number one priority is making money or or being a bigger winner than you already are then you know you have to accept the the variance as part of the game yeah i mean i was thinking about this somewhat recently i i haven't checked my records perfectly but i'm pretty sure that uh back in the day i went something like two or three years without having a five buy-in downswing peak to trough at at live two five um you know I mean, the first thing to say about that is I was probably playing badly, which I probably was, but my win rate was pretty good. I was just playing less badly than everyone else. But the second thing to say is like, those days are gone and they're never coming back. And that's just how it is. Like it's, you know, this idea that like, oh, well, maybe I'll give up a little bit, but I'll play this like magical style where I'll be a good winner, maybe not a peak winner, but a good winner. And I just won't have downswings of more than like five buy-ins. I mean, it's crazy that that, but I mean, it was real. It really happened. Yeah. Um, 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 no, that's not, it's, it's done. It's gone. It's gone forever. It's never coming back. The, the genie is out of the bottle. It's all the thing, you know, it, it is, we are, we are past it. The, 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 the seal is broken. The seal is broken. And to be clear, what, what's gone is people just aren't playing that badly. Any, like, there's just not that many opportunities to play circles around your opponents the way that you and just like always know when people had 
just like to always know what people are going to do essentially like yeah. there used to be a lot more opportunity for that and just like your average opponent even if they don't seem that good to you they are a lot better than they were a few years ago and certainly a lot better than they were 10 years ago um and so you know if, if you and i know that there are some people listening who have been playing that long and like whatever expect like if you have expectations that were established years ago about how your opponents are going to play and what sort of style is is feasible what sort of win rate is feasible yeah i think you do need to reevaluate this yeah 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 i mean there would be so many sessions where like i would kick myself if i so much as called a flop bet with a hand that was like not getting the right price against the opponent's actual hand not the mm-hmm. like range like i was just like oh why did i call that flop bet with top pair like when it turned out not to be like that that's yeah. just how the games played there were and, way more opportunities to just like know your opponent's exact hand way more people were doing things you know where they would only do it with one exact hand the idea of um, even being balanced in a very abstract sense was not that i think a lot way more people were just asking themselves like what do i want to do with these two cards right here and they had very like level one answers to those questions and i think not that many people play that way anymore yeah and like, and, and there's just like a lot more unpredictability. Yeah. I mean, it, it, for that reason and for many others, like I was playing a tournament recently and somebody sits down, a lot of nice jewelry, um, looks like a stereotypical wreck and like kind of seems to be playing maybe a little bit too loose, but like seems to be a straightforwardly value oriented player. And like, yeah, maybe getting a little bit frustrated. And by the way, any number of economic or 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 gender uh, uh assumptions might be coming in here but like then this player gets in a pot and like check raises the turn all in for less than a min raise with complete air like it's like wait what like what just it's like one of those things where if if she had shown up with the nuts like everybody would have said like oh well obviously that's like a really strong value hand and like if you said well there's maybe a two percent chance it's a bluff like people would say like no you're making excuses but like what do you know it's it it really it really happened it's like and more and more often i'm seeing these hands that are like huh i guess that does happen sometimes you know and this gets back to the the flush against aces thing. When you described that hand to me, you said like, Oh, this guy's a total knit. I maybe should just fold. But like the number of times where that knit turns out to have just complete nothing, like a complete air ball in that spot. Like it's still close to zero, but it's really not zero the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. It's really not zero the way it used to be. So, uh, so I'm old and you know, but, but thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for letting me right into the show. <laughs> answering my question i appreciate it sure. you dear you dear listener should also write into the show podcast at thinkingpoker.net uh so speaking of old school let's go get uh, adam levy from the green room it's been a while since he went to the green room to get one of our guests yeah that's right that's <laughs> right that's right only the best tap water Well, thank you, Adam, for uh, for taking the time to, to talk to us. I, I think I think I told you um, off the air, or you know, when we were we were chatting. I, I feel like I know you pretty well just because I've been running into you forever between like live poker and, and mostly online poker and like seeing your name around. But uh, I guess we haven't really spoken very much, so it's it's nice to meet you. 
Yeah, it, it is uh, nice to have a chat with you, and uh, nice to meet you too, Nate. Uh, yeah. Apparently, we played back in the day a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, a lot. A lot. I mean, like you, you were you were clearly better, and 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 uh, your average buy-in probably would have been higher. But we also definitely ran into each other a lot. Uh, my my old handle was Mortal Limit. My avatar was like an eagle against a blue sky. But you probably don't remember. Probably have no reason to. I- it, I do it, remember the, the vaguely remember the name. I will say it, that. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you look at your database, you can like sort of be happy and count all the money that you want against me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this is not the most important question to ask, but it will be on my mind until I ask it. Did you just really like Crank Yankers, or did you think the photo was funny, or or why why that avatar? I associate it uh, um, irresistibly with you. <laughs> Uh, both. I, I just always thought that that, that, for whatever reason, special ed from Crank Yankers, I thought was hilarious. Um, and, uh, then also the comedian behind it, I think Jim Florentine, uh, I'd started liking him and just thought that it was a kind of, it's just kind of a, the guy just, you know, the, the puppet, I guess just looks hilarious. Um, maybe it's not, uh, unfortunately in the new Crank Yankers, they, they rebooted it. But uh, Special Ed is not in there. Um, yeah, I, but, I had a feeling like, he might not understandably. have it in, in modern era. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> it, so, if you know, are, are, is comedy one of your things? Is that is that like an interest of yours? I mean, it, it is. It is definitely. I wouldn't say it's like a passion, but it's an interest. Uh, I ha- I actually did do. Uh, Stapes convinced me to do some open mic a couple times, mm. and that was kind of harrowing uh the first time was <laughs> was kind of easy because it's my first time and the second time I, it, was, it was tougher but uh yeah. it was, it's definitely a fun thing to do yeah very good very good andrew has better questions thanks for thanks for letting me uh <laughs> thanks for letting me un- unburden myself of my uh, sort of trivial curiosities andrew ask a better question <laughs> well you probably know this adam but um even with Google taking into account that I'm like more likely to be Googling the names of poker players, you still didn't come up in like the first 10 hits when I just Googled Adam Levy to see, you know, like what kind of what, what was out there that I could uh, do a little bit of, of uh, research on, on your background. There's like a British actor and someone who is in, I think, Nora Jones's band, like several Adam Levy's above you. Yeah, unfortunately, I used to be like the top Adam Levy in the world, but then it's a very common Jewish, like we'll say like a decade ago, if you just put Adam, yeah, but then there was an actor and then there was like, a, uh, yeah, the that guy, the Nora Jones guy, periodically I'll get um, people hitting me up for when I'm touring. Uh, I've also got, <laughs> I've also gotten, Adam, uh, for a while, my middle name is Scott and I would get the golfer Adam Scott. Like people would be like, uh, oh, man, I love when you golf and stuff, because on Facebook it said, like, Adam Scott Levy for a while. <laughs> and so, I mean, but, yeah, as far as uh, Adam Levy's, I'm no longer, like, you know, in the top ten, unfortunately. you got to put Adam Levy poker nowadays. Yeah. But I, I did come across, I mean, this is an old card player article about you, but there, there was a quote at the end that I liked because... 
I feel like so many of the poker, you know, we ask pretty much everybody we have on the show about their like origin story. And you really do get the sense that people who become professional poker players are skewed towards people who ran good earlier in their career. Like we've talked to quite a few people who are like, oh yeah, I just played the very first tournament I ever won, never looked back. You know, like you kind of get the sense there's probably a lot of people who could have been good poker players who just ran bad at the beginning of their career and decided poker was no fun and and went and did something else. But, um, you know, what you said, it took me a long time to get to a good point. My career didn't start by depositing $50 and never looking back. I think some of those stories out there like that are a bit of BS sometimes. I lost a lot of money before I became good, and I'm okay with that. Um, what what caused you to stick with it despite getting off to a rocky start? Uh, well, mm, so I guess I have like kind of like an overlap with magic, and uh, at some point all my, my magic friends started playing poker you know, and I didn't want it. I didn't want to play poker. <laughs> I want to play magic. And <laughs> like everyone was just so addicted to poker that I was like, all right, fine. Like, I guess I'll learn. And once I learned, it was way more stimulating. Or, I mean, I think magic's still a great game, but the element of money coupled with uh, the like, um, just like, you know, the, the, sh- GTO strategy, everything involved, and and then the luck. It just was like I need to do this. I don't care how I do it. This needs to happen. And there was like like I'd never. I just remember specific like thinking one day like I can do this. I don't care how I do it. It probably will be rough early. I'm a slow learner. Like, um, and I was and then just eventually like I guess things clicked. Uh, I became friends with Chad Batista actually of all people hmm. it was like me and him were like hitting it off uh like no one I had ever met like out of ever, all everyone like and there's some of the best magic players in the world that I like was playing poker with at the time and like those guys didn't see it the way that I saw eye to eye with Chad and then after that like things just yeah I lost a lot of money but I mean I was not very like bankroll conscious you know um but I think that's just that's just how it went. And this was like early 2000s? Yeah, like, you know, the 2003 moneymaker kind of thing. Uh, and then I'd say it wasn't until January 2005, 2000, yeah, early 2005, where I started seeing some results. And it happened fast. What was your magic career? I mean, were you doing like pro tours and, and that kind of thing? Like, how, how serious were you in the magic world? Um, I'd say that I was, like, always, like, a tier below pro. Um, like, I had friends that were pros, um, but then, like, basically whenever I would make it to the, like, you know, essentially the final table of a Magic tournament, I would always lose to the pros. (laughs) You know, like, I would make it to the final table, but I'd get, like, seventh or something. Um, and ironically, I did qualify for a pro tour once. But I was playing poker at the time, and this is before I was successful at playing poker. So I like won a trip to like Nagoya, Japan, or something, but couldn't afford to go to it, <laughs> uh, just like because I was doing bad in poker. It was just kind of a funny little irony there. But yeah, did you dive straight into tournaments when you started playing online poker? Or, I mean, I I, I I think of you as primarily a, a tournament guy. I mean, was that what you were immediately interested in or how did you gravitate towards this? I mean, I was interested in it, but uh, it seemed like everyone was playing 
like limit poker initially mm. and that wasn't very fun to me uh but eventually like tournaments started getting spread and and i found that to be a lot more like i, I like the fact that there was an end you know you could just play cash games forever and tournaments like oh i want something um but that said i mean i think that's like that was just like I'm, I mean, I don't know. Uh, recently, I've actually been playing. I haven't actually played a live tournament this year so far, and I probably played like 150 hours of cash, and it's been really nice. Yeah, so you... I, 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 I am maybe a little fuzzy on your recent <coughs> poker history, but you, you had um, gone to do some like eSports stuff for a while, right? Are, are you still doing that, or are you poker full-time now? I mean, I, I guess I kind of just went off on my own journey for a bit, and... I was like living in Vegas with some poker players and then just decided there was like kind of a, you know, just there was a window of time where I was like, you know what, I need to break away and try something else and just move to LA by myself. Um, had some friends that were like kind of, you know, in just like they were doing some things outside of poker and one of them convinced me to start running like uh, these, uh, do you know the game Rocket League? I've heard of it. Um, That's about all I know about it. It, it's basically like a car soccer and it's pretty epic because you can like fly and jump and you, you know uh, you just hit this big ball and it's super fun but I, I basically started throwing uh, these events in, in LA just like kind of promoting the that game and ended up like somehow Rocket League pros heard about it and started coming out to it and like that was pretty sweet um, and like I've always just kind of love gaming so yeah i mean there i w i'm not like head first involved in esports but i'd say that like there's it's definitely you know i'm very much around it um now i have like a events company where we throw like gaming events or we throw like we've thrown mario kart tournament but then a cornhole tournament and um we just like i just like games you know mm -hmm. and i think it's like a great way to socialize and bring people together and uh yeah yeah that, that's what i was about to say is it sounds like that sounds like a very uh social way of gaming in a way that poker often is not like it's it seems like the sort of person drawn to like going to a cornhole tournament wouldn't i mean not that it's like inconsistent but um it's not just like oh i like games so of course i like magic and poker and cornhole and rocket league like it seems like there there wouldn't be guaranteed overlap but between those things like what do you see as the through line between all of them uh mario kart <laughs> <laughs> um like seriously though uh i, I remember um like and so it's what i've learned with gaming kind of is it's not that you necessarily, like, or, or at least with social events, sometimes, like, you kind of just need women there. Like, you don't, <laughs> like, always need, you know, like, you can have, like, an, uh, like you're going to play, mar like, certain things, like poker or magic or whatever you don't. But if you're having a social event where people are drinking and stuff, it's, like, you kind of just, like, need that small element. And I thought, like, Mario Kart was kind of the overlap. If you were to, like, pull a hundred women right now it'd probably be like 50 like over half have played mario kart and because i mean because of that it just like is like such like a good way of bringing people together because you don't like if if uh you know there's hardcore gamers like yeah i'm gonna pull i'm gonna come out and uh 
you know, play, but, like, you know, no one's going to, like, no one's, it's really hard to get people to play League of Legends outside. Or even, even Rocket League is kind of daunting. Or, you know, but there's plenty of games that you have to kind of find that are, like, the, the like, they, they still are a game, but are not necessarily, like, impossible to learn, if that makes sense. So, like, that's what I love about Mario Kart. That's kind of what I love about Rocket League, but Rocket League is impossible. Do you mean, like, in- impossible to, to, like, it's hard to get started in it? Yeah, like, honestly, I think watching people play Rocket League for the first time is incredibly hilarious. Because <laughs> it, it's, very, it's very simple. You have a car, you kick them into a, you know, you kick this, you, you take the car and you try to, like, score a goal with, with this big ball by hitting it. But you have to, like, learn how to drive in reverse and then, like, turn to hit a ball in reverse. And that is really not, like, this is very counterintuitive. And then, like, you can jump, but no one really knows how to do it right. And there's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like what watching someone play poker for the first time where you're like, yeah, you probably shouldn't just, like, like go all in with 100 big blinds because you have, you know, aces or something. You know, they just, there's things you can't plan that are just funny. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the appeal that poker has going for it is that, um, I mean, there's at least familiar elements to it, right? Like people, most people know card games, so that aspect of it feels familiar, and the gambling is like immediately. Um... Yeah. Yeah, like uh, I, I feel like that's 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 kind of how people get get drawn into poker in a way that some of those esports. I mean, I guess esports are way bigger than poker, so maybe we don't need to explain why people are in poker. Well, and not esports. Funny enough, I, I did like some news spot a news piece like maybe a decade ago where I went in with like Maria Ho and I think McLean Carr, if you remember that name, um, and it was for KTLA like the new station in LA and we came in and played Starcraft against uh Starcraft pros and then they played poker against poker like us poker pros and it highlighted how you know they won you know like the poker thing or because it was just you know a little bit it was a very abbreviated quick and we got annihilated in, in Starcraft so so like the the that's what I love about poker is that there's a good element of of kind of gamble in it or luck that like is where the skill is a little less obvious which is where the beauty in it is yeah no i i think that's right i mean I think it's like it's obviously poker is a huge uh skill game but i think and i, I felt this way about magic like i hadn't played magic for a long time i i, I was playing probably around the same time that you, you know, at least what we were talking about in the uh, in your early days like i mean i was playing in like the mid to late 90s which i imagine you were also when i was a kid and then i was out of it for a long time and then actually just uh nate's gotten me back into it a, a very little bit the last time that i was uh staying with him we did a couple of drafts uh playing together online which was super fun um to just kind of like draft together just like talk through decisions in a way that like i didn't really enjoy i, I went with him to a tournament a sealed deck tournament also and i it kind of reminded me of everything i didn't like about magic just like playing that once yeah but uh getting to like sit with him and like talk through the, the decisions and stuff it did kind of remind me of um of what i enjoyed about that game but it, the, the idea of like getting back into it seriously it was just so 
daunting um, in a way that I feel like poker is not. Like, it feels very accessible. Yeah, I mean, Magic's a great game. I think Magic and poker have two uh, have one thing, in, like a couple things in common. One is that there is a little element of luck involved in every game. Like, you need, like, your resources, the mana, in order to play it. You need good cards, in order, you know, you need to hold in poker. And then also, uh, it's really cool to just kind of, you know, piece it together, kind of like, a, you know, just... Just like discussing it back and forth, it's great. But when you're playing in a Magic tournament, it's just like very long and like drawn out. And poker can be a little, a little. I mean, at least in a poker tournament, you it's worth the time. In in Magic, it's like okay, I just played nine hours and I got like fourteen <laughs> packs for like my seventh yeah. place finish or something. <laughs> which is like, okay, that's worth like forty bucks or something. I don't even know. Poker I'm curious what it would be like if poke if uh they ever allow like they allowed magic buy ins. Um mm-hmm. you know uh, the, the, that's kinda the but the thing is is poker is just so at least cash games, it's so pure. Because you can't like the, there's always going to be a point. At least how I've discovered in cash games is there's a point where like I'm like okay, this may be a little out of my comfort zone as far as the amount of cash that's being thrown around at this table. Um, and then like and it, and that's even for me who's played a lot of poker or something. Like sometimes you know the average player is always going to feel that whenever they're playing anything, and that's just kind of cool because it's right there in front of you. You're you're saying if what, like what? if if there were essentially magic cash game or like you're playing a, a tournament but you're playing magic instead of poker but you're like with a, a kind of similar like poker tournament payout structure. Yeah, I kind of was just like uh, I kind of just like uh, went on a tangent, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I played some high stakes magic back in the day, um, you know, for drafts and stuff, and that can get really uh, intense and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like. But I, I think that that's kind of like, I'm, uh, I'm just curious, you know? Like, what if there was a 10K buy-in for Magic? Uh, what would it be like? You know, that, that it's their money. That's the thing. It'd be, it'd be full of cheaters, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, but come on. <laughs> I mean, uh, Arena maybe. Like, it, it would have to be online, I think. I think it would have to be online. I mean, you could just, yeah, you could do it on, yeah, for sure. You could do it on Arena. That would be pretty interesting. I don't know. But, uh, you know, but with, with poker, at least you just always have that element where it's just like, yeah, I just, I'm playing a $10,000 tournament and now there's like 30 left in the main event and my equity is like a million dollars or something ridiculous. Like, that's just wild. It doesn't yeah. happen anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of think there would be an audience for it? Like, people watch these streams, and, like, more people watch the streams than really follow the details of the Pro Tour, and, like, if, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about a tournament from, like, six months ago, but if if, if Ember Cleave off the top, which is somebody's over to, uh, only out, like, if that was worth a quarter million dollars, I think that would add to the drama, yes? Oh, yeah, that, that would be, like, it's already kind of sick when stuff happens like that, but, you know, yeah. once, once, because, and, and what's funny is, I think it's kind of an irrational uh, reflex from just, like, the way that we're, like, kind of programmed as human, as, like, a, you know, 
money is so important kind of thing where it's like yeah. you know like yeah throw money more money into it and all of a sudden we just equate it to like wow that dude just got like three out of a house or something you know yeah 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 well, one thing you haven't said yet is that like the true card playing intellectuals all started into magic like my, my sense is that a lot of magic players are, are almost defensive about magic as uh, an intellectual pursuit and as a a a game sort of worthy of study. Um, do, do you feel that sort of pride, defensiveness, cultural affinity, any of that? I mean, I, I definitely have always, uh, for a long period of time, I would always kind of just mention magic, stick up for it. Um, well, uh, like, I don't necessarily know. There's definitely some pride there. Um, I do think that for a long period of time, and it kind of happened fast, uh, once it started moving, but like the stigma of magic and uh, and like kind of just gaming was just very tough to overcome. And uh, like yeah, within the past three to five years, it's just become kind of more accepted and and normal. And I think that's pretty cool that it's like I don't feel the need to necessarily defend it to the death anymore because it's just like. It's almost like a known thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. In, uh, in relation to that, can I pick up on something you were talking about earlier? Like, what can what can poker do, and what I guess also magic to um, be more uh, to, to to reach out to women better? Like you said, women mostly play Mario Kart. Um, surely there's a big cultural factor there. Um, like yeah. what, what 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 is what is poker doing wrong? What's magic doing wrong? Well, I think. Uh poker is they've actually they're actually doing stuff right which is crazy i think i think it's gone from like instead of it being three percent maybe it's at like seven to ten percent women yeah. now or something which is which is good but you know uh surely I, there's a large like cultural component to that which is yeah, like, not good <laughs> like, sure but i also think that there's just kind of a biological component to some extent where it's like men or maybe it's like social like constructs where men have just been taught to be more competitive and not saying that women can't be competitive but it's like if it's not something like poker really fuels a competitive drive and how many how many times have you met like a former athlete at the poker table who just like is like yeah like i love poker you know because they just want yeah, to get yeah, that yeah yeah she kicked my ass <laughs> <laughs> nice um so, but it's more like if the competitive drive is not created, that, or like you need to have that drive. It's hard to, and if you don't have it, it's like, like less of a passion to like play poker, I guess. That said, um, I do think that it's, we have to be kind of just nicer to women. And we gotten, we, I, and when I say we, I feel like it's more like men as a whole at the poker table. Think about it. what it was like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It was just like dudes in cowboy hats, smoking cigs, like <laughs> oogling women and saying comments like and then saying sweetheart and this and that. And then like, yeah, obviously that stuff's still going to happen. And it's still like it's still like kind of like, you know, awkward for a lot of women. But I, I believe that it, it has come a long way and, and there are more women at least. There are more women in the, the culture of poker that are known um, than there maybe ever has been. Mm. So 
I think that's just like a really hard thing to get, you know, a lot of women into to poker, but I think we actually are improving. Yeah. <clears throat> do you think do you think it's in the right direction? Like what what do you think that percentage will be in 2030? I mean, I think I I would like to think we're over we'll be over double digits. Honestly, it's possible that the way that, you know, we're kind of trending just like uh as like a uh, like, as a culture, like our, not not poker culture, but just like the way that um, humans, Americans, all of, we're just interacting. It's like, I, I, it could be somewhere around 20 to 25%. Like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it just like made a huge gap because a lot of it is like, once the, what, I've, what I feel like I, what seems to happen is that like, it's not that women are not opposed to these things. They're just not necessarily exposed to these things. And it's like, once, like, you know, like, I taught my ex uh, how to play poker, and she ended up getting fourth in, like, a ladies' event. And she started loving it. You know, like, it's like, she would have, if she never dated me, she would have never played, and probably never played poker. But once she did, she started liking it. So it's kind of like, uh, I mean, maybe just take different channels you know, like, don't just have, like, a ladies' event. Like, physically go somewhere to some place where there's a lot of women and just, like, run a free tournament for them or something. And, and you know, I think that, yeah, it could, could could see a big leap. I don't know. That's a good question by 2030. Interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's <clears throat> something we talk about on the show a fair bit, a fair bit. And, uh, yeah, curious to get your take. So, so thanks. Yeah, I hope I didn't uh, cross too, like uh, cross too many lines there. I thought I thought it was thought it was a good take. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I think I think probably we have some differences in perspective here, but like, I think one thing is like, it seems to me that the culture has changed a little bit. Like, like there's much, 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 much work that needs to be done. But um, yeah, like for example, at the encore, I I played at the encore for over a hundred hours before I heard anyone make a comment about a waitress. And like, to be clear, this is not to congratulate anyone for basic decency, like not at all. Like, like that, that, that's not something that anybody observes praise for. That's like baseline decency. However, 15 years ago, that would have been more or less unthinkable. I think yeah. for that to happen. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do, do you, is this something you found also in your live play? Like, do you think, at least some of the the most explicit bad behavior is is improving. I, I yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, I do think that it will differ from like place to place. Um, like I'm in LA, I think there's always like just kind of depends on the demographics sometimes of people coming in or or not even demographic, but just like the location. Certain areas are yeah. you know like I think if you were to go to maybe you know some midwest place and like some casino like choctaw or something i wouldn't be surprised if you still hear stuff like that but it's also kind of yeah. you know just that's just kind of how it is um will they catch up eventually i hope so um but i i really do think we've we've improved but long ways to go still yeah yeah i mean if you had told me like if i could go back in time and tell 2005 nate that like in 2019, a casino is going to open. You're going to play, and in your first hundred hours there, 
you're going to hear no comments about a waitress, but somebody will chastise you for using uh, for 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 having a single use plastic with you at the table. Like, <laughs> it's like I would like to see the look on 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 my face. And again, not to praise anyone for common decency. That's not the point. The point is just to say that things have changed a little bit. Um, I I think uh, you bring up a very good point that I I happen to think poker players like you're stating right now, uh, seem to be better at than the average person because we don't necessarily adhere to the day-to-day, you know, nine-to-five kind of grind, and we can kind of take a beat to just observe and reflect. And it's that, you know, we have, like you just said, it's come a long way. Um, And, and like, so for everything that we're fighting about now or that's, like, it's still just, like, yeah, but it's like it doesn't just happen overnight, and yeah. you know, I'm curious what it will be like in ten years. If I can just take a hard left turn here, um, sure. I'm curious how did how did you connect? Like you mentioned, uh, Chad Batiste or Batista or Batiste. Yeah, um, Batista. Yeah, you see, you mentioned Chad Batista being like your your early like poker influencer or poker buddy. How did you connect with him? Uh, kind of, I mean, honestly, it's, uh, I, it was kind of crazy because I was a 22 year old, like sheltered Jewish kid, you know, uh, it just like, I, I had, I'd gone to college, but it hadn't really worked out at the time. And I was just kind of, you know, didn't really know much about the world. And Chad was like 24 coming. Yeah, I think he was in jail for something like or, or prison, like something serious. And he comes into the game that the magic players, uh, you know, run and that we were all playing. And he's just like, I, I, I don't know. He's a very uh, kind of um, he would get very angry whenever he lost a pot. But we were playing limit hold'em, <laughs> So it's like if you're going to get every, <laughs> Mad every time you lose a pot and let them hold them, you're going to go nuts. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't really even know how it materialized, but we just chatted a few times here and there. And all of a sudden, like, I started realizing, like, this guy, even though, like, he's got, like, you know, a grill and and he's definitely from, you know, some, like, some place that I did not grow up, you know, in, um we just saw eye to eye on a lot of things, even though our styles couldn't have been different. Like I was very nitty and he was very like very loose. Um, but I mean, I remember, uh, so then, but he was broke and I would actually, I, I staked him like he would, he, I would drive him around cause he didn't, couldn't drive. And, uh, he would sleep on my floor and like, I would just go to bed yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, you want to, like, get... I guess I let him play on my account on Party Poker. Um, like, this is, like, 2004 or whatever. And just be like, hey, man, work up the steps. Um, and then, you know, obviously, this is before the Justin Bonomo thing. Like, no one knows. Like, this, is, this isn't, this is like, something that, like, you know, I would necessarily do today. But, like, it's just, like, something that was, you know, like, yeah, you if you work up my step tickets from, like, step three to step five, and then I can just play the step fives, like I'll pay, I'll pay you a chunk or whatever, and it's like so he'd do that. I'd go, I'd go to bed. He'd stay up all night, and he'd like grind. Like I'd wake up, and he'd like, yeah, I have like set like four step, 
fives and then like seven step fours and like that's like it was the way that it worked for party poker steps back then like i only had like his his uh closing percentage was kind of ridiculous like he he basically like come back with like 60% 50 70% of like the tickets like that were they they somehow got progressed up so i started paying him um like a like giving him percentage or whatever and then i guess that gave him a bankroll and then he started just playing more and honestly just started crushing and ran it up and it would be every night me him and uh, his other homie ben just playing the party poker 30 rebuy like and there was a rebuy trick um that was weird where you could go all in but and if the chips were in the middle you could rebuy and uh we would just it was like our nightly tournament we would just always be at the final table and then eventually just things started taking off and we were just crushing constantly um there's an interesting time i know it's kind of long-winded but it's just like uh uh he's he's definitely like a poker phenom that uh is really you we have not i really feel like we haven't seen anything like it since yeah he seemed you know he was another person that i i kind of felt like i I mean, he, was, he was very familiar to me because I would see him at the table all the time. And then if you ever did see him at a live tournament, he was very distinctive. If people don't know what Chad Batista looked like, uh, just Google Chad Batista poker just so you have an idea of, of what we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, I guess, my like prejudice. It was difficult to take him seriously initially like until i really saw his results when i just like saw a picture of him i was like come on there's no way this guy is good at poker um which is entirely on me like that's not to to endorse that view but um i mean it's definitely just like uh uh was that was understandable because like it's just you know i get where you're you know that i are i i feel that because it's just there was you you don't expect like everyone just thinks like and all of our like nerd egos would just be like oh yes like like I just remember being like way too egotistical back in right. the day like and like that, I think that's we a all great way to, kind of nerd, nerd ego is exactly the problem like it, it was just like that guy's not like an intellectual in the same way that I'm an intellectual therefore he must not be smart yeah and then like you would like be in denial when he starts freaking owning you. right. And you're like, oh, this guy can't be good. He's doing that. And then, like, <laughs> like what's funny is that the stuff that we thought was like, oh, that's terrible, actually was proven to be right, like, years later or something. Like, I, I, I didn't know for a long period of time that, like, you should defend the big blind way, 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 way wide. Yeah. I, I, and, and I feel like a lot of people didn't up until, like, maybe 2011 or 2012. Like, it wasn't, it's not that long like it's kind of shocking because i think there were if if you had figured this out which i believe that that people did in like the late 2000s or early 2000s you would be you would your roi would was probably astronomical like just the fact that you're supposed to not fold the big one <laughs> something just very simple like that like it, it inherently makes sense but i just remember a lot of people that i would that would hang around and be like Oh yeah, um, like you're supposed like why are you de- why are you defending the big blind with you know queen seven offsuit or something? <laughs> that was exactly the example I was going to use. <laughs> queen seven offsuit. <laughs> I, I was going to say king seven. Uh, <laughs> yeah, or king seven, like you know, like or people would be like, oh, don't play it because it's suited. That was this is something that I just remember very early on. Like 
like, oh, I want to play suited hands. And, like, then, like, the people are like, oh, you can't play something because it's suited. And then I find out that suited hands run 3% better. Like, you know, like, you know, you're just like, well, so I shouldn't be playing them. And it's just hilarious how we all just kind of shot ourselves in the foot because of, like, uh, social norms almost. Or, yeah, like, but, but by the way, I can remember being at a party in either 2007 or 2008 and, like, a bunch of fancy pants online pros like drinking and making fun of this heads up guy who was playing high stakes on full tilt uh, for for defending something like king nine maybe king seven against oh a my God. <laughs> yeah in, in heads up and uh, you know everybody's laughing I'm gonna give him infinite action yeah I might be losing now but I, I'm giving him infinite action and by the way that was Phil Ivy <laughs> oh my god what like yeah like we just we lost our minds. I feel like Phil so Ivy did not lose his mind. <laughs> no, he did not. Now, I, but, I remember yeah, reading wow. uh, Gus Hansen's book Every Hand Revealed and thinking like, oh, this guy's like he's calling with ridiculous hands from the big blind. Like how he, he must have like amazing reads to be able to get away with you know just peeling with Queen Seven from the big blind. And yeah, when you look back in retrospect, you're like, oh no, he just understood the game much better than I did at that at that time. But he didn't like. Um, and I, I mean, I guess understandably, like those people weren't really shouting it from the rooftops. Like you should be doing this. I, uh, or at least in, in Chad's case, I felt like you know it was. Um, I'm, I'm sure he welcomed people thinking he was just like an idiot for uh, for for doing it, or like spewy for for doing. Like, I remember he. I used to be upset with like Hansen. He would call three bets with. I was like, oh, he called a three bet with Jack Ten, and he got there. Like, uh, you know, and obviously, like you look back on it now, and you're like, oh, that's clearly the correct play. So the thing about Chad is, I would say that he didn't always do something and there would be these uh, I think he had some sort of innate you know like sixth sense or something well because I just remember watching um, like the feel that he had up into it like for obviously at some point like poker tracker and you know now PO solver and stuff started just like math just kind of beats it out but the feel he had for understanding when a player was like maybe getting a little irritated with him or you know that a player was just like trying to make a move was kind of uncanny i just remember watching like one time like i'm, I'm at his house and he's just like he raises ace four offsuit on the button and this dude shoves for 30 blinds and he's just like this guy is king queen like and i'm just not folding and then like the guy had king queen and he just held <laughs> and i was like what like it's just like it's like this, and I just I've seen stuff like that so much. I, I feel like he was one of the first people I I encountered that started four betting, um, and like it's crazy that all these things that we now say that are just so commonplace in poker are just like see we're we're not really done uh, 15, 12, 15 years ago or something. I think you're right that a lot of the you know top performers from that era. Um, I mean, I'm sure some of them were like also mathematically informed or like we're studying the math side also. But just you know, everyone was doing so much by feel at that time that if you had a stronger sense of feel and like I you know I, I believe that some people did not in like a supernatural kind of way, but just that I mean people were doing things that were betraying things about their hand or about what they wanted you to do. And some of those things were very subtle, but I think some people were better 
by picking up on that than, than others because they weren't arbitrary. You know, it was like when you when you chose a bet size or a raise size or whatever, even if you thought you were choosing it arbitrarily, like your brain's not actually capable of choosing it arbitrarily. And this is like a big, you know, I, I coach a, a lot of people that I coach now are what I call like serious recreational players who are, you know, they're not doing a huge amount of like math work on, on their game. And, you know, I'm often trying to convince people that they should have some kind of theoretical understanding of the game. And the usual pushback is like, oh, well, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not playing like thousands of hands with people who have a hut on me. So what does it matter if I'm balanced? Like no one, no one knows how I play anyway. And, you know, that, that like the, the Chad Batista sort of thing is kind of my answer to that is like, they don't need a database on you you are if you're doing things that are exploitable they're not just arbitrary it's not just like your personal style like there's reasons behind the things that you do and if you size your bets one way when you want to get called in a different way when you want to get a fold even if someone's never played with you before it doesn't mean that they can't sort of uh suss out what you're trying to accomplish and then do the opposite of it and i imagine that's like a, a where a big part of success for someone like chad came from yeah, and the player pool was not very large then. It was like uh, we all knew everyone at some point. Yeah. And during Black Friday, we were like, oh, God. Or before Black Friday, we were like, oh, everyone knows everyone. Like, there's no new players. And I don't know. And, like, we're all so good now. Just, <laughs> everyone man, was just too good. Dude. Everyone was just too good. Every, everyone just had a massive ego. <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. But, yeah, it's it's kind of fun to think back and just look and kind of chuckle. So you're getting kind of into um, coaching now too, right? You're doing some of that. Yeah, I um, I have a couple students that I've uh, kind of picked up, or I mean, you know, like I I wouldn't say that I'm doing you know like high level necessarily, like PO solver. Uh, I might reference it or something, um, but I am trying to do like focus like just kind of give them like a well-rounded approach where like hey just because like you did this doesn't mean that like you're like just because like you played well today doesn't mean that like you should just slack off like mentally or something and just show up and not prepare yourself like maybe how you should um and uh it's it's been interesting i'm i'm kind of learning that uh, i'm not I guess it's hard to not like sound like a uh, bragger on some level, but I feel like I'm legitimately good at it. Um, <laughs> like, like there have been some, I'll just like Gail go on some rants for a bit and kind of like, it makes me a better poker player, I think uh, coaching and it's kind of, and it's fun. This is, this is new for you. I mean, I imagine you've, you've always like talked strategy with people, but actually, you know, working with people who are several levels below you that's like a relatively new thing for you i mean i've always kind of like done this with friends and stuff but like never uh just post you know seek uh out uh or sought out uh you know people that i don't even know um coaching from and uh it's yeah it's 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 definitely a new thing um i'm I don't know. I just never really did it. I never, I did like some, like, you know, coaching for like WPT, like deep stacks back in the day, I guess. Um, But that was never one-on-one stuff. And the one-on-one stuff, I I think is pretty interesting. And uh, it's pretty helpful, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a cliche to to say it, but it is very true that like you understand stuff better when you're forced to, to teach it 
to people. And also just when you need to explain it in, in different ways, right? When you realize like not everyone is going to think about it in exactly the same way that you do. And when you're forced to explain it in, in like different terms or from a new perspective, I think it also encourages you to understand or, or like compels you to understand things at a, at a deeper level. Yeah, it's interesting because I had one player that literally I needed to teach how to play poker, basically. And then another one's like, yeah, I'm like a mid-stakes grinder in like Oklahoma or something. I play cash, play like the circuit events and stuff. And then like another one, it's like everyone, it kind of teaches you about like the different levels of, of poker. It's hard to quantify, you know, when everyone's like, oh, I got leveled or like what level of poker are you on kind of it doesn't really you know like it's not like a no one's ever been like oh yeah he's he's level two and level two means he only knows what like a you know what a what betting the flop is he doesn't know what a c-bet is yet or something you know um i think that's what's so hard about it is there's not you kind of have to know everything at once like there's not just like okay learn this and then learn this and then learn this like you 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 do kind of have to be working on everything at once but at the same time working on everything at once is a horrible way to learn anything yeah it's just like a lot of just yeah throw it against the wall and hope one of the things stick um but i mean it's what's been good about it is I might say C-bet or I might say like three, let's like there was a situation where I was like, all right, I can't even like talk like range or, you know, like, you know, I can't even use certain words mm-hmm. here with this player. I'm going to find ways to kind of get around my normal lingo. And that in turn is also kind of making me, you know, like can't, <laughs> you can't just be like, yeah, well, like PO solver, you know, says to, like lead here 30 percent of the time and they're like like what you know i just want to understand how to call from the big blind with like jack 10. (laughs) (laughs) well and it is like i mean it's not like just following uh even if you had like a solve that told you exactly what a solver would peel with from the big blind with exactly these stack sizes and and everything else like it's still not going to be profitable for you necessarily to call with every single one of those hands because many of those calls are going to be like barely plus ev and if you're not going to play them as well after the flop as pio is like it's still not going to be correct for that player necessarily to call with all of those hands. So I mean, even aside from like all the other reasons why it's not helpful to just show someone a pie chart and be like, memorize this, this is your big blind calling range. Like it's not even, it's not even what their big blind calling range should be. You still have to play the hands, right? You know, like there's still just, uh, there's still a lot of other things involved within just, just poker, uh, in a hand of poker and it's dangerous. I kind of, yeah, I really, so Oh, I think you were saying that, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, well, they don't have many hands on me and stuff. And I, and I think for, honestly, for a bit, I was a little against PO Solver, partly because I was scared it was going to end the game, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it did was just show us that poker is even more exponentially, impossibly tough <laughs> than ever before. Um, but I... I it's it can it can definitely get in the way and hurt people if if you're teach- I think I saw someone saying like oh yeah my 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 coach tells me that I need yeah like you said you know my coach is saying he's like someone playing like a one three game you know at the bike <laughs> and 
you're like, yeah, my coach is saying I have to have my check raise range flop, my check raise flop range is down for this game. It's like, okay, you're just gonna get owned by some dude re-raising with like mid like tens on like a nine high board because he just doesn't. He wants to see where he's at or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's da- it's a dangerous it's a dangerous thing. So coaching is definitely tricky but fun. What is I mean, so you, I mean, you've mentioned Pius Alvar a few times. In, in terms of like your own work to continue getting better at, at poker, um, you know, what, what does that look like? What are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Um, I really haven't been doing much, uh, too much lately. Um, I try to. I have like a, a group of friends that I will talk poker with, and whenever like I play a hand, I try to you know, think about it, and, and that kind of helps in some uh, some way, but right now, like, I haven't been playing, I've been playing only cash, mm-hmm. and it's, it hasn't been particularly, uh, I guess, like, hard, I mean, maybe not, it's, maybe hard's not the wrong word, like, because like, I'm definitely making mistakes, I mean, like, it's not like I'm facing tons of aggression all the time with people with balanced ranges, you know, like, uh, I'm I'm just trying to kind of get, like, like, it's kind of very, you know, simple poker words. Like, all right, like, let's swap a set and try to beat an overpair or something to get paid <laughs> to some extent. But, I mean, I'm just trying to, to get comfortable with just being a cash game player, um, which is something that I've never done. And I don't I feel like me, like, yeah, I definitely can study, but I do think that, um, like, that's... But I'll probably study, you know, uh, as like the LAPC kind of starts rolling in, I'll start like kind of getting back to, you know, tournament poker. But right now, like cash is so new, I just kind of want to get the the feel and kind of the comfortable, um, like you know, the comfortability of, of playing massive pots and being okay just calling off a $500 bet on the turn because like you have a pair and a flush draw and you're priced in. You know, it's like uh, there's definitely some. I think that takes a little bit of time, so I'm not putting too much pressure on myself at the moment. What was the impetus to uh, to like make cash games your your main thing when it, it hasn't been for? Or, I mean, it sounds like it hasn't been for a long time. Um, literally, uh, I was having a conversation with my parent, my mom, and she just was like, I mean, she's always been kind of like a like she's always loved me playing poker. Um, and like always been a big fan, uh, like just like like my number one fan, kind of always rooting me on. And she was just like, at, like, cause the thing is, I think I had just been stubborn with the whole tournament grind for a long period of time, and I and like like I had a kind of a big ego from just playing poker and doing well in tournaments, and kind of like like the fact that it ends, you know. And tournament and cash games seemed boring. And then literally, my mom was just like, "Adam, you've been doing this for fifteen like year plus years. It's just like a very simple way for you to withstand the variant." Like she didn't say in those words, but she was basically like, "This is a simple way for you to withstand the variant, mm-hmm. you know, of poker. Like you're just doing yourself a disservice by not playing cash games and." I had always just had a, uh, like a, I, I could feel it whenever I would play cash. I was like, I'm bored. I don't know. There was something. And then I just kind of recently started playing it and was like, 
this is, I like this. I don't know. Something changed. Maybe it was just like a conversation from her and just kind of made me realize like, wow, like I really just need to give this another shot um, for just like my own stability. And uh, it's just really proven to be the case and it's been very enjoyable and I hope to keep playing a lot of cash. That's cool. And I mean, it sounds like she's not, she's not really a serious uh, poker player, right? Like you said, she didn't use the word variance. Like I, I guess I, I like that you know that she's capable of communicating that kind of wisdom to you without actually knowing a lot about poker. It sounds like. I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where you might not know the terms, but at some point you just like pick up on on everything that you've seen over the years from your you know your son. Um, but she actually has played some. Yeah. And I'm not joking. I was at her house like. So uh, two two funny quick little uh, stories. One was she hit a royal flush, two royal flushes in an hour playing on full tilt. And, like I was like, what? Like I, that doesn't seem possible. And she showed me both, and I was just like, I don't understand. Like this is <laughs> infathomable. Like, and then um, so the so 2009, I got second in like the 5K F tops, um, which is like, yeah, that's cool, uh, but. I was at her uh, house, like, playing, because I was I was planning on moving to L.A. at the time, and this was, like, a few weeks before, so I was kind of, like, packing up and staying, and, like, just, like, like I was just there, um, and I was, be, you have to understand, it was, like, 300, I think it was, like, 380K for first, and I'm playing this tournament at my mom's house, and she knows it's going on, and whenever I would, she, she didn't want to bother me because she knows it's like an intense situation, but also she did kind of want to see what was going on. So she would like watch. And so whenever I put chips in the middle, she would like, she'd be like, she'd like kind of, kind of come in and <laughs> scream through, like ask the door, like, what do you got? What do you got? And like one time it was like, I had like, I have aces. And she just like started like, kind of like running around like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it was it was just hilarious, you know, because it's, it's like online poker is just funny because sometimes they're, you just are really playing next to your mom and like she's like she doesn't know how to react either. It's just kind of hilarious. Yeah, that's cool. W- will she come on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I'm not maybe. joking. Like she, she's got an interesting spot in the poker world. It's. Uh... <laughs> I mean, honestly, it would be interesting to hear. You know, like I, I don't really think that they're many moms of you know poker players that have really been interviewed i mean it seems kind of like interesting like phil galfon's mom or something that would be fun (laughs) yeah Yeah. so why did your son get the slide did you go on the slide (laughs) i had a kind of similar um thing with with my mother i'd played uh, i'm I'm from uh maryland pretty close to maryland live and uh so i I went to play the um wpt at maryland a few years ago and i stayed at her house while i was doing that and you know i came home i think i had like you know gone into day two with like one of the chip leaders and ended up not bubbling or not uh not cashing 
So I was like sort of frustrated when I when I got back and was explaining that you know I had lost with like queens versus aces, but it was like maybe I actually could have folded the queens preflop. I was just sort of like trying to explain to her not for like her not actually knowing that much about poker, but I was kind of trying to explain yeah. what the dilemma is of like you're certainly not supposed to fold this hand. I'm like against someone good, it would be trivial to get this in, but like I sort of like this exact player, maybe I could have folded it. Like this is kind of the dilemma, and uh, and she said to me, I, I want to get this exactly right, and I probably won't, but I think she said. Uh, when it works, it's intuitive, and when it doesn't work, it's impulsive, or something like that. You know, this is like not really poker specific advice, but applies very well to poker and, and to that situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, that that's actually an amazingly uh, astute answer for like, because I can't tell you how many times like something like I've heard from other poker players like, yeah, like I I I how I t- I always tell my mom like. You know, like, oh, I lost, but it happens sometimes, and then, like, they'll just, she'll just be like, but why didn't you win this time? <laughs> like, just, like, you know, you just get an array of different answers from, uh, you know, the, like, people who just don't really understand the whole, you know, just how poker works, and it can be pretty funny. So to get, like, such a, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty good way to, you know, yeah, no, a good response. No, I thought it was great advice, but much better advice than the average poker player would probably give you for that situation. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. So, anything you want to uh, close with, or you know, you want to uh, encourage people to visit or read or, or watch? It doesn't even have to be poker related. You know, what's your what's your favorite book? What's your favorite movie? Um, I'd say that. One of my favorite books is actually the, uh, so, you know Josh Waitzkin? Uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, The Art of Learning? The Art yeah, of Learning? Yeah, yeah. It's a great book. I, great book. Well, I didn't actually read it. It was an audio book, so I guess that's, like, kind of, like, I, I have. Like, I don't I don't know if that's cheating <laughs> or not. But I, I did, like, absolutely love it and constantly just, like, think about it um, and, and think it's really helpful. Uh I guess also, um, like, if you're in L.A. and you want to come to uh, one of uh, my events, we have an event February 29th. Uh, it's called, our, like, company's called Games and Grooves with an N, so maybe give them a follow on Instagram. And uh, also, if you need some coaching, uh, feel free to hit me up and uh, at Ruthless on Twitter. And that's kind of it, I guess. Well, now that you mentioned... Uh the Waitzkin book. I, I'd be curious to get your take on this because this is a question. Um, I actually I, I read this book at the prompting of, of one of my students, uh, or actually a few people have encouraged it to me. But someone in particular wanted um, to know, like, what would be the equivalent of making smaller circles in terms of studying poker. Um, you know, and I guess for, for people who who have not read the book or don't know the concept, the idea is that he kind of learned. Um, I don't remember, was it called Touch Hands? Or what was the name of the... Um, push Hands. Push Hands. Push push hands. hands. Yeah. So they kind of, the, the way he learned this like martial arts competition was to sort of constantly make smaller and smaller circles with his hands and just like really get down the, the motion of, of... like I guess the idea is to kind of like build from fundamentals. And the, the student wanted to know like what would be the equivalent of that in poker. And I still feel like I don't have a great answer to that question. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. So you're saying like he kind of just slowly built his way into like kind of stacked uh, learning every time. Well, I, th- and, I think it was just, like, like really mastering of like identi- like boiling the thing down to its fundamentals and like 
mastering one small thing before moving on to something else would maybe be the yeah so i i i do think feel that was my takeaway from the the book but uh kind of like the whole um he talks about the zone and how you eventually kind of just things become natural and it and it kind of stacks like what you're saying where it's like yeah like the fundamentals and then you uh kind of move on yeah that's what it was, it was i guess it's the idea of getting into like unconscious competence with like to use the jared tendler term like to, to get it to the point where you know it uh sort of in your bones you don't need to think about doing it to do it but i mean other than like pre-flop ranges i'm i'm not really sure like what would be the poker equivalent of that i mean i think uh there are there are small instances i think uh i was actually uh it's it's kind of hard because I think they're in in tournaments at least there are situ- certain situations that maybe they're not specifically like exactly, uh, you know, alike. They are kind of like this has happened before. I, I feel like I've been here before, and if if that makes sense, like out of all the tor- you know sometimes like uh, let's say for one simple example is like I have a. Uh, and like I raise, and then like uh, the flop comes like ace high, and I'm gonna see bet my entire range here or something. Like I don't, I don't know, you know. Like I feel like that's like one of those things where it's just like I learn, I kind of learned that like, all right, this is what I do in this situation, and we've been here before, and it's just kind of like a known thing. But it's the problem with poker for that is that you don't know when that situation is always gonna arise. Right. So it's like you have to. So it's like, yeah, you have all this these fundamentals that you built, but like, you don't know that like you're gonna have to deal with like you know some like like the circumstance is completely random when it comes next. So I mean, I don't really. I mean, I think that's a that is a good question. I'd have to think about that. But I mean, I guess that that's what makes. A lot of some of the best poker players, if they're able to kind of access that information um, on the in the moment, even though they've been in the situation before and like completely, you know, be ready to react. I, I am thinking now. We we talked to um, Stephen von Zedelhoff a few months ago, and uh, he said, you know, he wasn't really, you know, he he studies a lot with like Pius Alvarez that sort of thing, obviously. But when he's actually playing, he doesn't like try to solve a spot in real time or something like he he the way he put it was he's saying he was essentially like playing intuitively that he like through studying the the solvers he has good intuition on what to do in these spots but he's not necessarily like building a range in his head the way that i would like i kind of feel like i am i mean i'm not not that i'm anywhere near as good as a solver is but like that is kind of what i'm doing when i make a decision is i'm trying to think about like what would my range be in this situation what other hands would i play this way using that to determine like my bet size and which hands would be good bluffing candidates and it sounded like that wasn't really how he was approaching it like that he was just kind of he was intuiting the right play based on his uh study which sounds like kind of what what waitskin is uh, talking about yeah it's just like it's yeah i i think that the studying kind of just happens by playing a ton of hands because you you know it's it just sucks that when as as a you know you're you're a coach and you say all these things, and then like you can't just study 
this one situation over and over until you like get it down. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't just go and play the, you know, and then immediately there's going to be 50 ace high flops that you can just figure out how to play <laughs> right. against like, you know, these opponents, you know, I have kind of um, wondered, I mean, this isn't really how I teach people to approach things, but I do sort of wonder like, and I think maybe I'm getting this from Tommy Angelo. Like, what if you just picked a, a certain situation, like playing button versus cutoff, and you're like, I'm just going to get really good at playing button versus cutoff. And like, I might not be that great at playing like big blind versus cutoff, but I, I really know how to play when I'm button versus. Cutoff. I'm going to start and just like master that, and then I'll like start moving out to other situations. I, I feel like that'd be kind of an interesting way to approach getting getting better. Um, I mean, you probably would learn things that'd be applicable to other situations, but like rather than trying to like study the entire game at once to just like pick one, or maybe button versus big blind would be a better one to study, especially if you're playing tournaments. But just like try to pick a, a single sort of commonly recurring situation and just learn everything about that situation as much as you can, rather than trying to you know, learn all the different things. Have you uh, heard? That, 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 that was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Can I, can I just say that? Sorry. Can I just say that was like a very common or at least a somewhat common bit of advice among sit-and-go players back in the day. It was just like, pick a spot and know everything about it. And sit-and-goes, like, it, it, it suited sit-and-goes very well, of course, but, like, it's like, oh, if there are three, if we're three-handed and the stacks are like this, I know what to do. And if this stack is one big blind deeper, then I know which hand to cut out of that range. And, like, it really was, like, just pick a spot and know everything about it. Huh. Sorry, Adam, go ahead. No, 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 that, that definitely seems like a smart way to approach it, especially in sit and goes because those situations really do come up a lot. You know, like you, there's only a finite amount, like, you know, the, that, that is actually an incredible way to study sit and goes because, you know, everyone start would start, there's only nine players. Everyone would start with three K. So it's like, there's, you know, 20, everyone at some point, the blinds go up and now it's like, oh, it's 12 big blinds versus 15 big blind, you know, stack. Like this situation has definitely happened before. Um, but I, I, I so there's this app called DTO, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't necessarily just say, hey, I'm going to play 58 high boards in a row or something, but it definitely, it does, I think, uh, Dominic Niche, um, yeah. like, is involved with it, and you can basically just look through all these hands that have already been solved by PO, and it can tell you if, or you basically like play the hand, and it'll like quiz you, and then be like, you know, it'll say, oh, you played it wrong, like this way or that way, or played it right or something, and that can that seems like a good tool to kind of hammer in the fundamentals. Yeah, I've been meaning to check that out because I do. I mean, it it sounds sort of similar to um, Poker Snowy, but probably better than Poker Snowy for that that purpose, I would guess. Uh, and I haven't. Yeah. Yet. I mean, it's been a few years, but like I I did used to spend a decent amount of time on on Poker Snowy, and I found that like fun, especially when I couldn't really play online poker anymore. It was a good way to just like get in a bunch of hands against decent competition and get some feedback on them. Definitely, I agree. Well, thanks so much, Adam. It's been very uh, interesting talking to you. Thanks for uh, taking a couple extra minutes here with us. And uh, yeah, good luck. Good luck with the event. Hopefully, we'll get some listeners out there. But regardless, I hope it goes well for you. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. This was fun. Uh, actually, talking poker. Yeah. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bad bad joke. But yeah, fun. All right. Have a good night. Pleasure All right. To meet you, Adam. All right. See you. Take away the pain
last nights Do I need some kind of pill Or the devotion of a car I'm a light of the fair passage of a bill 